The scripture reading for this morning is from Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven." At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we've come to the end of our series on why Sunday morning matters. And my aim all throughout this series has been to look at Scripture in order to better understand the beauty and the relevancy and the necessity of gathered worship on Sunday morning. We looked first at Psalm 87 and saw that God is more glorified when we worship him together than when we do in private. We looked second at Ephesians 2 and saw that God is more fully present with us when we're gathered together on Sunday morning than he is with us individually. Next, we looked at Hebrews 10, which tells us that God's people are best built up in our faith when we gather together for worship on Sunday morning. Last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians 14, which tells us that when believers come together to worship God with a burden to build one another up in the faith, non-believers who are with us may discern that God is truly among us and put their trust in Him for their, for their salvation. All along, I've been uh, you know, reminding us that this is not an either-or series. This is an if-then series. So let me do that one last time here, lest there be any confusion concerning what I've been saying. I am not saying that either God is glorified or you are experiencing something of God's presence or you are being built up in your faith or non-believers are being reached through you, because you're here on Sunday morning, either that's happening or it's not happening. That's not what I'm saying. It is true that you can glorify God in your private worship of Him. We're to glorify God with our entire lives. 
It's true that when we come to worship him and spend time with him in private devotion or in family devotion or family discipleship, it is true that by his grace we can sense something of his presence. It's true that in our private study of God's word we are built up in the faith. And it is true that non-Christians can be reached at times other than Sunday morning. This is not an either-or series. This is an if-then. If the Bible tells us these things are true when we are alone or when we're in small groups or as a family, then how much more when we are gathered together on Sunday morning? All that's true. All that if-then applies, except for this morning. Except for Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is a stunning passage. The author of Hebrews is telling us that something amazing takes place whenever God's people gather together to worship him, and it's this. This text is telling us that when God's people gather for worship on earth, they are at the same time gathered with the angels and saints in the unseen realm before the throne of God. This passage tells us that earth touches heaven on Sunday morning. That's happening in a way right now that is beyond that which we can discern. So I guess in one way this is an if-then in the sense that if the Christian life is all about walking by faith and not by sight, then how much more when it comes to what Hebrews 12 tells us? about our Sunday morning gatherings. We are sensing creatures. God gave humanity the ability to see, to hear, to taste, to touch, to smell, in order to better perceive the world around us. But these are spiritual things that we are talking about this morning. There are spiritual things happening here on Sunday morning that we can't discern by the senses. They must be spiritually discerned, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. These are things that cannot be seen, but they are no less real. So there's three things that I want us to consider this morning from this text as we wrap up this series. And the first is this, the two mountains. We're going to look first at the two mountains that are in this passage. Second, we're going to look at the one mediator. And then third, we're going to consider the wonder of worship in the company of heaven. So the two mountains, the one mediator, and then the wonder of worship in the company of heaven. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that you would be with us Lord, even as we pray that, we are confident that by your spirit we are in a way that we can't understand. This passage reminds us that even now we are spiritually present with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to feel both the weight and the glory of that, the joy of it that it offers to us. And we pray, O oh God, that by your spirit you would help us to understand more of what this word tells us that our Sunday morning gatherings might be more and more filled with joy and reverence and awe and gratitude. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So first, the two mountains. Look first at 
Sinai. That is the mountain that's being referred to in verses 18 through 21. Let me read it again. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And in Exodus chapter 19, God had led his people out of bondage in Egypt through the Red Sea to the foot of Mount Sinai. That mountain, when God descended upon the mountain in a, in a fiery blaze, that mountain trembled. It shook. It burned with fire. Moses spoke to God and God answered with a voice like thunder. The mountain shook. The people at the base of the mountain shook. Moses shook. What happened? God was confronting his people. And his people were recognizing that this God is holy and that they are not. God's law, his glory was being revealed to them in a way that taught them that this holy God could not be approached. No one went beyond the base of the mountain. They were terrified to go any further than that. They begged Moses to talk for them, lest they speak and be destroyed. Why is the author telling us about this mountain? The author of Hebrews is telling us about this mountain because this mountain represents one way of approaching God. It represents the way of the law, the way of works, the way of standing before a holy God, kind of God that the scriptures tell us about, and thinking, I can earn my way to him. I can climb the mountain. I can live the kind of life that enables God to accept me into his presence. And this passage reminds us that no one, no one, no one can do so. Whoever would choose this way would perish. Even considering such a thing ought to leave us trembling with fear, recognizing that judgment is coming. But God has opened up a better way. And that way is shown for us in the second mountain that's referred to in verses 22 to 24. Let's read it. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, Zion... It was an actual location in Jerusalem. That's where the temple of God was located. That was the earthly counterpart to the spiritual reality that is the very presence of God. That's what's being referred to here in this passage. What's happening there? A party is happening there. Worship is happening there. Joy is found there. When it talks about a festal gathering of innumerable angels, that word festal gathering is only found here in the New Testament. But in contemporary language at the time, it was used to refer to essentially the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. The Olympics were taking place back then. Something like an opening ceremony, the joy, the, 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 the wonder, the excitement, the anticipation of all these you know, um, uh, athletes coming from various regions and areas around, around there, that, that was the opening ceremony. It was a, 
being referred to with the same terms here when it comes to the life of heaven. The thunder of Sinai is drowned out by the chorus of heaven. The second mountain tells us that we come to God, the judge of all. People on this mountain are in God's very presence. People at the base of the foot of the, fir- at the, foot of the first mountain were just that, off the mountain, away from the God who thundered from the mountain. The people at the second mountain are on the mountain. They are in the very presence of God, not at the base, hiding in fear, but with him in great joy. Two mountains. But remember this. Two mountains, but one God. One God. We cannot say, you know what? I like the idea of the God of Zion. I want nothing to do with the God of Sinai. Isn't God, after all, a God of grace and not a God of law? And the answer is yes and no at the same time. He is not a God of law in the sense that he puts it on you to save yourself by obeying his law. He is a God of grace because he has made a way for you to be with him apart from your obedience to his law. The same God is the God of both Sinai and Zion. He is the judge of all, verse 23 We've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all. The first mountain in verse 18, it tells us that there was a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And at the end of our passage for this morning, verse 29, it tells us that our God is a consuming fire. The God of Zion is no less terrifying than the God of Sinai. These two mountains represent two ways of approaching the one God. All will either approach him or encounter him on the basis of one of these two mountains, either on the basis of law or on the basis of grace. Only those who approach by grace will find access into his presence. The author of Hebrews tells us about this grace when he tells us about the one mediator, Jesus Christ. So take a look at verse 24. We have come, verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. All Again, all stand at the base of Sinai apart from God's grace. Whether you know the Ten Commandments or not, the Ten Commandments that were delivered to God's people at Sinai, whether you know the Ten Commandments or not, whether you are a follower of Jesus Christ or not, you know in your heart something of what God requires. You have some sense of right and wrong. That comes from God. That's not the result of you know, evolutionary process. We just kind of arrived at this place where morality matters, when in every other instance when it comes to you know, evolutionary process, it would actually be the case that the strong eat the weak. There's no evil if that which you are seeking to do is actually in your best interest. You know that that's not true. Where does that sense of right and wrong come from? It comes from the God who made you, who made you in his image. 
to know you and to walk in, to know him and to walk in his ways. You have this sense of right and wrong in your heart. At some level, you know that you are at the base of Mount Sinai because you know there is a God who exists and that before him, your good deeds do not outweigh your bad deeds. If God is the God of both mountains, then as we said in the call to worship in Psalm 24, if God is the God of both both mountains, then who can ascend his holy hill? Who can stand in his holy presence? And the answer that Psalm 24 gave us and that the entire Bible gives us is only he who has clean hands and a pure heart, which is none of us. We need someone who will stand before God for us, who will plead our case for us. And that person is our mediator, Jesus Christ. He ascended the mountain of the Lord. He is the one who bore the wrath. He is the one who went to the cross and rose from the grave. As the hymn says, he has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. His blood speaks a better word. Abel's blood cries out, avenge me. Jesus' blood cries out, forgive them. How should we respond? The answer is in verse 25. Listen to him. Listen to him. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that the main problem in the world is not that people don't believe in Jesus, it's that they don't believe in God. Why believe in Jesus if you don't see your need of him? If you do, in fact, see that you are at the base of Sinai, if God is a God who cannot be approached by your own works, if you believe that this is the only God who exists, that he is unapproachable, And that all that is waiting for you is judgment. If you believe that the God who exists is real, then you will see your need of Jesus. And God the Father cries out concerning Jesus, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Every day you are drawing nearer and nearer to the judgment. That's what the rest of the passage, 25, second half of verse 25 through verse 28 is telling us. Everything will once again be shaken. The kingdoms of the world will be shaken. The powerful and the successful will be shaken. Those who have lived for this world and this world alone will be shaken. Only those who have listened to the voice of the mediator, only those who have listened and put their trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation will receive this kingdom that will never be shaken. Have you listened? Have you heard? Have you believed? Now, what does the passage say to those who have listened? Look at verse 22 again. Verse 22 does not say, but you will come or you will go one day to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. No, it says you have come. So let's finish up by looking at the wonder of worship in the company of heaven. 
You know, every so often in the Bible, the veil is kind of pulled back to give us a picture of things that are unseen, but no less real. You see this in Job, right? The entire book of Job, in a sense, the canopy's pulled back. We, we, give a, we get a window into what is happening in the very presence of God as Job faces all these afflictions in his life. We get a peek behind the veil. It's pulled back just a little bit for us. You see that in places like 2 Kings chapter 6 as well. In 2 Kings chapter 6, you know, here is Elisha the prophet. He's prophesying. He's, he's making it so that the king of Syria and his armies are always just missing an opportunity to conquer the armies of Israel. And it's because Elisha's receiving a word from the Lord. He's offering that information to, the, to the, the king and the generals of Israel, and they're able to elude the king of Syria. At some point, the king of Syria finds out that it's Elisha that's doing this, and he's like, go get him. And so he sends his armies, the chariots and the horses and the soldiers, and they are encamped around Elisha's hut, his house, his little tent, whatever it was. And Elisha's servant comes out one morning and notices all the soldiers all around him and gulps. Doesn't tell us that. But I'm sure he's a little concerned because he went back in the tent and said, Elisha, we've got a problem. And Elisha came out. And Elisha prayed. First, Elisha said to him, those who are with us are greater than those who stand against us. And Elisha's servant, you know, looks back in the tent. Again, a little bit of imagining. And then Elisha prays, God, open his eyes so that he might see. And the servant's Eyes were open. The veil was pulled back, if you will. And Elisha's servant saw the angels and the chariots of fire and the horses all around them on the mountain to protect them. The veil was pulled back. The servant of the Lord, Elisha's servant, got a little glimpse of what was real. Unseen, but real. The same thing is happening here in this passage. Look again at verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn. That word assembly, it's the word church. The firstborn are all those who are believers in Jesus Christ. We have been given the right, John tells us, to become children of God. And because we are in Christ, the firstborn, the one and only Son of God, we have the rights of, the inheritance of the firstborn. The assembly, the church of the firstborn in Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the very presence of God, the author of Hebrews says, you have Come. He goes on to talk about, in verse 23, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It's talking about those who have gone before us, those who have died, whose bodies are in the ground, awaiting the resurrection, but whose spirits are present now before the living God in some way that we cannot comprehend. Listen, the best theologians of the world cannot explain this. They can only describe for us what the Bible says. But in the same way that the Trinity can't be really explained, it can be described, 
and the incarnation, the resurrection, so too here. It's a mystery. It cannot be seen. But that doesn't mean that it is not real. When we gather in this sanctuary, we gather in the Lord's sanctuary, in the presence of God and His glory. How should we respond to that? Well, the author tells us. The author tells us, first of all, I think, that we should join with the angels in singing with great joy. I mean, if we're gathered together with these innumerable angels in festal gathering, if the, if the vibe, if the sense of what's happening there among them is one of celebration and joy, then, yeah, it ought to be for us as well. The author of Hebrews also tells us that there ought to be, our, our gatherings ought to be marked by gratitude. Verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The author tells us that it ought to be marked by reverence and awe in verse 28. Thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. How can these things go together? Joy, gratitude, reverence, awe, wonder, One commentator that I read earlier this week said, you know, imagine receiving an unexpected gift, something that you did not anticipate at all, something that you know that you don't deserve, something that changes your life forever. It could be, you know, the the gift of an an organ transplant that without which you would have died. Think of any number of things that it could have been or that it could be. Some gift, some undeserved gift, something that without which you would be lost, that you did not at all expect, and yet has been provided for you. How do you respond to that in your heart? With a sense of joy, of gratitude, of awe, of reverence. Imagine how much more that must be the case when we're talking about the God of Sinai, who is the God of Zion, apart from whose grace we would indeed perish, but has given us this amazing gift of his Son, the blood of the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, shed for us that we might have access to the God who made us, the one whose hearts we actually long for, even when we don't realize it, even when we've been reaching for this and that and the other thing our entire lives, to have this way opened up to us that we might be in relationship with the God who will fill our hearts with joy forever. Yeah, the right response to that is joy and gratitude and reverence and awe. There are many things that are bound up with the idea of let us offer to God acceptable worship, some of which I've referred to in earlier sermons. Let me just point out for now that what pleases God when it comes to our relationship with him is believing that he exists. It's faith. The author of Hebrews tells us that in Hebrews chapter 11. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God loves it when people come to him believing in him. 
God despises formal worship that is detached from a heart marked by gratitude and joy. He said through uh, the servant, uh, through the uh, prophet Isaiah concerning the people of Israel, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God wants our believing, grateful, joyful hearts. Hearts that have meditated on the wonder of his love throughout the week because private worship does matter. But come here, ready to gather together with the saints. The saints we can see, the saints we cannot. In order to offer this God who has rescued us, praise. You know, the the sermon that first uh, inspired this series was a sermon by the Puritan pastor David Clarkson, public worship to be preferred over private. In that sermon, at the end of it, he uses this illustration that that I want to end with today. It's not so much an illustration as it is a reminder of something that happened. You know, when the wise men went looking for Jesus... They saw what anyone else with them would have seen, a baby in a manger. But they saw beyond that which could only be seen. They saw by faith beyond the appearance of things to see what was real concerning that baby in the manger. And when we come together for worship, we're called to do the very same thing. Yes, we are here. Yes, we are worshiping together in this place at 805 Blossom. But there's more going on here than meets the eye. Let's walk by faith more deeply into that reality so that we might more fully, in this time that we have here now, until that day when we are gathered there forever, let us worship God together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for the way in which your word calls us, not only to know you as our Savior individually, you have rescued each one of us as the sinful person that each one of us is, desperately in need of your grace, without hope and without you, in this world and forever, apart from you reaching in and rescuing us. And yet you don't just save us as individuals, you save us as a people, You are, as this passage tells us, our God. You have bound yourself in covenant to us through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, O God, that you would help us to always listen. Help those who are with us now who may not yet know you to finally listen. And Lord, we trust in your power to keep us until that day, that day when everything is shaken except those who have received the unshakable kingdom. Lord, knowing what is coming and knowing the joy that is ours even now, help us to rejoice with reverence, with awe, and with gratitude as those who are your own. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.